everyone. Welcome back to Killer Instinct. It is Wednesday. I hope you are having an amazing, amazing day. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah Brimer. I am your host here on Killer Instinct. Go ahead and hit that follow button so you'll always be notified when we post a new episode, which by the way is every Wednesday. So as you can tell by the title of today's episode, we are talking about Christopher Kurz. Now this case really rubs me the wrong way. Um, I think it's a lot more complex than it was made out to be. And I think that it needs to be looked at a lot deeper. Um, This is a case that was kind of looked at as a runaway and as a suicide, but I just don't think that that's all it was. And that is why I really want your guys' opinions on this. So today, Christopher Matthew Kurz is who we are talking about. And he was born on February 19th in 1973. His parents are Jim and Lonnie Kurz, and he was a member of his high school swim team. He played the clarinet. He loved doing things like skiing and camping and reading and playing laser tag. And he was also an amazing student. He did really, really well in school. He had been invited to join the National Honor Society and was a National Merit Scholar semi-finalist. So he was very, very intelligent, very smart. Christopher had brown eyes and brown hair. He was about five foot 11 and he was really badly nearsighted. So he was always wearing contacts or glasses. And on the day Christopher disappeared, he was last seen wearing a mid-calf length acid washed blue denim trench coat, a black black cotton sweatshirt and black jeans with pockets on the knees. He was wearing size 11 brown leather shoes and a plastic watch with a zebra striped band. Christopher lived with his parents and younger brother Patrick in Egan, Minnesota, I believe is how you say it. If not, I apologize for butchering it. So Christopher went missing on April 20th of 1990 and April 20th during that year fell on a Friday and Christopher was supposed to go to school that day, was supposed to be like any normal Friday, but when he woke up, he told his mom he wasn't feeling well and he had a bad headache and he needed to stay home from school. Jim, who was his dad, like I said, had just left that day to go on a business trip in Wisconsin. And so his mom, Lonnie, let him stay home from school that day. And she actually had to leave to go out of the house. I'm not sure if she had to go to work or what she was doing, but she had to leave that day. And she was going to be back later in the afternoon, but she gave Christopher some medication to help with his headache and said that she would be back a little bit later. So Lonnie got back to the house at about 3.30 p.m. that day, April 20th. And when she drove up to her house, she realized that the family van was gone. Something that was also very unusual was the family, the Kerr's family had a dog, And the dog was like running around outside. And that was really unusual because the dog was always leashed up, especially if anyone was leaving the house, they would always put the dog away. And so when Lonnie walked inside, she noticed a note on the counter and it said, quote, mom, something important came up and feeling somewhat better. I'll be back by six unless I get lost. Love, Chris. Now the word lost was underlined twice in this note. And at first Lonnie thought that lost would be underlined. And it was kind of like a joke because Christopher was known to sometimes get lost when driving because he rarely drove outside of their neighborhood. And when he did drive outside the neighborhood, he had a tendency to get a little lost. So that 
that is what she took that note as and what the underlying meaning to be. Now, again, this was 1990, so there was no texting or anything like that, unlike today, where if you would leave, you would shoot a text or a call explaining what was going on. So a note was all Lonnie had to go off of. And at first, she didn't think anything of it. She expected Christopher to come home. He said he would be home by six. She didn't really think anything of it. But as each hour passed and Christopher wasn't coming home, Lonnie's concern grew more and more. So at 10 p.m. that night on the 20th, four hours after Christopher said he would be home, he still hadn't shown up. And that is when Lonnie decided to call Jim, Christopher's father, and told him what was going on. Like I said, he was at a business trip in Wisconsin. And when he heard about what was going on, he turned around and came directly back home. And it wasn't too long after Jim got home that Patrick, Christopher's little brother, had actually told his parents that Jim's shotgun was gone. But even though the gun was gone and none of the ammunition was gone and Jim usually kept his ammunition and his gun in two separate areas but this only made Lonnie and Jim even more worried about what could have happened to Christopher so his parents didn't end up filing a missing persons report until April 21st and it was that same day that they received another note from Christopher and this one was being postmarked at Duluth Minnesota again I probably butchered it and I'm sorry but I searched on the map and when I I found Duluth, I figured out that it was about two and a half hours away by car from where the Kerr's family lived. So to be postmarked at Duluth, the letter probably would have had to be sent the same day that Christopher had left, considering the fact that it's pretty unlikely that he would send a letter that would be received on the same day day. But this note worried Christopher's parents even more because in this note, Christopher said that he had lied to his family about being sick that day and that he used the family van to get away to, quote, to not even I know where, end quote, and that he had planned on taking his own life and he was sorry for hurting his family and the ones who loved him. Now, when police started their investigation on this, they were able to figure out that Christopher had taken out $200 from his savings account the day that he disappeared. Now, when I saw this, this was a very big red flag to me that something bigger was going on because if Christopher intended on taking his own life, why would he take out money before leaving? You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And at first I thought maybe it could have been for gas because he was driving so far away, but then I realized it was 1990 and the average amount of money for gas was about $1.15 to $1.89. So surely that's more than enough money to get wherever he was trying to go. I also thought that maybe he took out that money for ammunition at first because I don't know, he didn't take the ammunition with him. So to me, that says one of two things. I feel like either Christopher didn't know where Jim kept the ammunition and had to have to try to look for it. And maybe he got frustrated looking for it or he got worried that his mom would come home so he figured he would go out and buy the ammunition himself I also had the thought that maybe Christopher was unsure if this was really the path he wanted to take because if he was sure that he wanted to commit suicide why not take the ammunition with you because you're taking the gun so why not take the ammunition and Christopher like I said was 17 at this time and I know that at least now you have to be 18 to purchase ammunition in Minnesota but the laws could have been different back then but I also feel like $200 of ammunition which mind you 
I don't really know anything about ammunition, so I could be wrong here, but I feel like $200 of ammunition is a lot of ammunition if your sole intention was to commit suicide. So to me, with all of this being factored out, the $200 withdrawal didn't, it just doesn't sit well with me. And two days after Christopher's disappearance, the family's van was found abandoned on a road of Itasca County in northern Minnesota. And Itasca County, which if I'm butchering it again, apologize. Like I said, it's in northern Minnesota and it's near the George Washington State Forest and the Chippewa National Forest. And it's about 20 miles north of the Grand Rapids. So where the van was found was almost a four hour drive from where his family lived. And it's about a two hour drive from Duluth where the second letter was sent from. And to give you a little visual from the map, so Egan, where the family lived, is more in the middle slash like south area of Minnesota. And Duluth is more on the north, like more so on the right side, kind of towards Lake Superior. And Itasca County is a little more inland and north. And Egan and Itasca seem to almost be like a straight shot to each other. And the van had the keys left inside of it, as well as a note stating who owned the van. So when they found it, they knew that it belonged to the Kerr's family. And I'm not sure if they ever did any like handwriting specialists like figured out if the note that was left in the car was matching Christopher's handwriting because it was so long ago but I wasn't able to figure out if they were ever able to do that so the search to find Christopher was very extensive. The police were working really hard to try to figure out where Christopher was, but at the same time, they were kind of treating this as a runaway case, considering that there was a note left by Christopher, and they were also treating it more so as a suicide. But there was one tip that someone had called in that said it was from a man, and he said that he had picked up a hitchhiker in Duluth that looked similar to the picture of Christopher that was floating around in the media, but that lead was never verified. And also, I would like to point out that if the car was found in Itasca, how does it make sense that Christopher went back to Duluth? How would he have dropped his car off in Itasca and then ended up in Duluth without a car only to be like picking up a ride again? He could have hitchhiked to Duluth, but then hitchhiking again doesn't seem very likely to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So for about six months after Christopher's disappearance, the family was receiving really strange phone calls, the Kerr's family. And it wasn't just the Kerr's family who was getting these calls. It was also their neighbor who happened to be Christopher's best friend at the time. And when Christopher family as well as his best friend would answer these phone calls no one would say anything on the other end of the line but there were noises in the background that kind of sounded like a party but like I said no one would speak on the other end of the line and then the person on the other end would hang up and Christopher's parents are pretty much 100% convinced that these calls came from Christopher but like I said these phone calls continued for about six months and then they abruptly stopped Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments 
Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So like I said, the police searched very intensely for Christopher, but were treating it more so as a runaway slash suicidal case. But I do want to say, you know, even with the suicide letter and all of that, it, I read nothing about Christopher ever displaying sides of suicidal thoughts or anything like that. It was kind of out of the blue for a lot of people. That does not mean that this was not something he was struggling with internally. It could very well be possible, but I do want to mention that I never saw anything about him outwardly struggling with anything, but again, that doesn't mean that he wasn't. So police had classified Christopher's case as an endangered missing person, and they did, like I said, treat this case as a runaway, considering the fact that there was no sign of forced entry in the family home, and there was a note left from Christopher. Christopher now, if it was the present day, would be about 45 years old, and police think that Christopher most likely committed suicide, and his remains have never been found. They also believe that it's very likely that a hunter found the gun that was taken out of the home, Jim's gun, and that's why it has never been found. And they have asked the public if anyone had seen a gun in the areas that Christopher was in during the time frame right after 1990 to report it, but no one ever has. So the reason I wanted to touch on this case is because I don't think it's as black and white as Christopher wanted to run away and commit suicide, and that was it, and that's what happened. I do think it's very highly possible that Christopher might have ran into the wrong person on this journey. So let me run you through kind of my thought process on all of this, and then I really want to hear what you guys have to say on it. So to me, I think that the note that Christopher initially left for his mom to find is the key component in all of this. He said something important came up. What was the something important? I think that is a major, major, major clue into figuring out where he went. Maybe, and this is what I think. I think maybe he owed somebody money, which could explain the $200 being taken out of his bank account. And maybe he was dealing with the wrong person. I never read anything about Christopher being involved in drugs or anything like that. He seemed like a really good student who was involved in school activities, but at the same time, you never really know like what someone is dealing with internally. So maybe he was getting medication or, you know, drugs, who knows? But something to also look into here is if anyone saw him on his journey to wherever he was leaving, did any neighbors see him leave? What about the bank when he took out the money? You know, someone had to have seen him along the way and to, you know, see what kind of state he was in. Did he seem anxious? Did he seem nervous? Did he seem calm? Was he with anyone when he left or when he was at the bank? I think that's really important to think about as well. I also think something that should be noted here is that even though there was a note that was left by Christopher, it doesn't mean and shouldn't rule out the fact that it is very possible that Christopher had every intention on coming home that day. To me, I don't really think that it makes a lot of sense to leave a note if you're not planning on coming home that day, at least a note saying that you're going to be back at six. Like, why not say he's coming home later to give him more time if he's planning on driving super far away so no one can find him before he does this? Maybe someone came to his house and made him write the note. There's just a lot of possibilities that I don't think that should be ruled out. I also want to say that I think that 
you know, because there was no forced entry, I feel like this, if that, if this is the theory that we're sticking with, that someone, you know, coerced him into writing this note, to taking him to the bank, to doing all of this, I think it's important to remember there was no sign of forced entry in the house. And would Christopher let a complete stranger in his house? Probably not. So this was probably someone that he knew and that he trusted well enough to let him into his own home. I also saw a lot of people talking about this fact too when doing my research. And a lot of people questioned that if he was leaving to commit suicide, why not do it the same day that he left? And why did he have to drive over 200 miles to do it? Also, what was the point of writing a second note? You know, like, I feel like if you were to do something like this, obviously, if this was his plan, he already had it set in his mind that that's what he was going to do. Why not just leave the first note, have that be the note where you, like, tell everyone what you're going to do and apologize and do that? Why go through and write a second one? And then why is your car found in a completely different spot than the letter was sent than the second letter was sent there's just a lot of questions in this that i just i can't wrap my head around and i just don't think that this is a simple runaway case i think that there's a lot more to it and i just i know that when you see this case you think runaway but if christopher wanted to run away and if he wanted to commit suicide he would have done it he would have left his house that day he, he could have left his house that day and just not have said a word gone out and done it. But in my opinion, I believe that he didn't. And I believe that Christopher was involved with someone or in something that he shouldn't have been and was a lot more dangerous than he might have thought. I think that him going out and getting $200 is a very telling. I just don't think that if he was planning on killing himself, why go get money? You don't need money at that point. There's no purpose that $200 can serve you. And so I think that that $200 was meant for someone else, someone that he had been in contact with for whatever reason, who was providing him with something or just this, the wrong type of person to be involved with that he owed money to. And maybe there was a second person involved because that person had done something to Christopher, killed him him and had to make it seem like it was a suicide because he had written a note saying that he had been back or he would be back at six. So he knew he had to plan it or stage it to be something more than that and kind of stage it as a suicide. Who knows? I just don't think that this is as simple as Christopher wanting to commit suicide. I think that there's a lot more, like a lot more important elements to it that I think need to be looked at really closely because clearly if he wanted to kill himself, he could have and he just went through all these extra steps and also the phone calls really kind of question puzzle me because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me if it was Christopher, why wouldn't he just say something? You know, why did he not say anything? Was it someone calling who was trying to throw the case off and kind of try to throw people off and make it make them think something else, make them think that Christopher was still alive? Like, who knows? But I definitely think that this is, like I keep saying, more than what it meets the eye to be. But with that being said, I am so curious to know what you think about this case more importantly. And I just think that it's important to keep the word about Christopher's case spreading because even though this case was so long ago, I think no matter what the time period is, it's super important for all of these families and victims to have justice and 
know what happened to the people that they love the most. So as always, I really encourage you to just spread this case as far and as fast as you can. Also send me your theories. I love reading your guys' theories on the cases that I cover. And you can do that by either DMing me at Savannah Brimer on Instagram and Twitter, or you can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com, which is also where you can send in other case recommendations that you want me to cover here on Killer instinct. With that being said, you guys, that is going to be all for me today. Make sure to email me your thoughts. I am so curious. I want to know what you think. Do you think I'm reading too much into this? Do you think it is as simple as it was a suicide and Christopher wanted to end his life? He was unhappy. He was depressed and he wanted to just end it. Or do you think kind of what I'm thinking that there's more to it and it should be looked into deeper? I feel like because they've never found a body and they've never found the gun, I also think that's really telling. But then again, the national parks where his car was found did have a lot of water. So who knows what really happened? But I really would like to know what you guys think. So make sure to send in your theories as well as your case recommendations that you would like me to cover. I always, always, always look in those emails to learn and to get new ideas from you. That is going to be all for me today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Killer Instinct. Go ahead and hit that follow button. That way you never miss an episode. Like I said, we post weekly episodes here on Wednesdays. So make sure you follow. That way you're always notified when we post a new episode and it's free. So why not? That is all for me today, you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your week and an amazing, amazing weekend. Stay safe, you guys. I'll see you next week.